The Lord be with you and also with you. Bless the Lord who forgives all our sins. God's mercy endures forever. Friends, near and far, we welcome you to this Sunday service of ordered worship in the nave of Marsh Chapel, Boston University. The liturgy, homily, and music are offered in the praise of God for our gathered congregation here at 735 Commonwealth Avenue, for our New England radio audience through WBUR 90.9 FM, and for our internet listenership around the globe, live at WBUR.org. We encourage your written or emailed responses, your prayerful and material support, your self-identification with your own form of ministry, and as the Spirit moves, your presence with us for worship. In the Lenten wilderness, we are dealing with division, dealing with decision, and dealing with derision. Once to every person and community, this day we, we remember, comes a moment to decide. This is the day that the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. As we are able, let us stand in the praise of God.
we pray. Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Beloved, a weekly moment of contrition brings the comfort of order and the power of pardon. When we worship, we find our tongue for confession. In the living of these days, as Dr. Indik said in another connection, we may need to find a way forward that is less naive in its assumptions, more modest in its ambitions, more humble in its approach, and more imaginative in its anticipation of what can go wrong. You are known. You are loved. In that confidence, during the singing of the Kyrie, let us offer our own silent confession. Hear the good news and trust the good news. Our past is tamed, our future is open. If we confess our sin, God who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. A lesson from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses one through 17. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth below, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love 
to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the alien resident in your town. For in the six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or male, or female slave, or ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Let us read responsively from Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, and the Antiphon. are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day works forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and nothing is hid from its feet. stand for the reading of the Gloria Patri, the reading of the gospel, and the singing of the Jesus Christ, according to St. John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Glory to you, O Lord. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, 
What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Our hymn is found on the insert in your bulletin.
be seated. The passages of the New Testament we have were not written in the main with an eye to posterity. Their authors had no conception that they would form a part of Holy Scripture. They were written in the moment, for the moment, out of the moment. They were occasional in every sense of the word. Military directives set out to the outposts on the battlefront. This is one way to think of them. They are meant to encourage, shore up, change, augment, and foment conversion. At virtually every point, they invite a new response in faith to life. They are a fight song of faith, played in various keys and with various verses, with accompaniment by various instrumentalities. To our hearts and minds, they propose a question Sunday by Sunday. How do you deal with decision? The long weeks of wilderness which form our yearly Lenten pilgrimage prepare us. We deal with division, decision, and derision with Jesus in the wilderness. Notice that John has arranged, rearranged the furniture of the gospel. He has placed the temple cleansing at the outset of his story. We become who we are by daring to decide. We discover the power of imagination by, by daring to find the courage to decide. Some years ago, following a dark reenactment of the events of Holy Thursday and Good Friday, a 10-year-old guided by his mother asked of the Jesus so depicted, what did he do that was so wrong? What was the linchpin that led the narrative to the point of the cross? I believe I mumbled in response something about blasphemy and something about treason. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Gospels other than John, mark Jesus' downfall at the temple. As he attacks inherited religion, as he cleanses the temple in those Gospels, his doom is sealed. In John, it is the resurrection of Lazarus, long chapters later, which seals his fate. But John, too, sees the power of decision in Jesus' appearance in the temple. In fact, in the second chapter, John opens with Cana, that happy story, and the promise of incarnation enshrined in that happy wedding, and closes with the temple, the forecast of cross, our word, which is his abiding interest. Jesus is himself the temple which others will destroy. Here he gives his new view of the future, John does, not to be awaited somewhere in the clouds. No, not for him. It is taking place, this future, now, in the life and in the destiny of Jesus. All throughout, throughout his life and throughout your own, there is the struggle for truth and grace. This too is Jesus' struggle, especially preeminently in the fourth gospel. He becomes himself, his own most self, not his almost self, in dealing with decision. In this today's decision to, to affront and confront inherited religion. Faith is finding the courage to choose. Faith is dealing with decision. Memory is our aid here. Remember Proust comparing the low and shameful gate 
of experience and the other, the golden gate of imagination. Memory feeds imagination. Faith is finding the power, receiving the power to choose and then to reflect on choosing, to take responsibility for the choice, your choice, to learn with choosing and to address the consequences of choice. Dealing with decision means dealing too with regret and dealing too with failure. This too is faith in action. Listen again to the regret in Yeats' poem. No single story would they find of an unbroken happy mind, a finish worthy of the start. Young men know nothing of this sort. Observant old men know it well. It is the heart of living to deal with decision. The long wilderness days, biblical and personal, may prepare us to deal with decision. May that be, by grace, our case today. John opens his gospel with the temple decision. The others close their gospels with the temple decision and its portent. Now this is Sunday, and you want, will want to know, come Sunday, some suggestions about the manner of decision to consider, that is, these suggestions as you make decisions every day. Here are six practical suggestions when you decide. One, think and pray with some care as you deal with decision. Two, go ahead and use the time-honored tactic of making a simple list of pros and cons. Three, solicit the insights and thoughts of five or six close friends. Four, consider whether or in what ways the choice is reversible and what that might mean. Five, consider whether or in what ways the choice is universalizable. Could all in your condition, in your situation, be advised to do the same and what that means? Sixth, test your prospective decision against the real dream of your almost, your utmost self, not your almost, not your almost self, your ownmost self. And here, too, are three spiritual warnings. Real decisions are real hard. They are hard enough without a whole lot of self-denial thrown in. The first warning is against sloth. There is a kind of self-abnegation that is a form of sloth. It's an unwillingness to do the hard work to say what you need. It is a kind of laziness, though sloth is so much more than laziness. The hardest, worst things are the things that everyone knows and nobody says. Some years ago, I remember a young woman who came to talk in tears. That Dece December, her life had changed. For two and a half years, she had been in relationship, in love with a young man. I elect to name him Bill. She and Bill were very happy. They loved each other. They were in love, and she adored him. She gave to him, and gave to him, and gave to him. Yet there was no decision about the future. And when the matter of commitment came up, the subject was unwelcome and was dropped. Bill loved her, he said, but he just could not think about getting married. That winter, she finally went to him in a serious mode. She confessed her love. She extolled his virtues. She reveled in their affection. She kissed him and hugged him in tears. And then she said something that was very, very hard to say. She said that she needed something from him, some commitment, or she would need to depart. She would always love him. But she knew in her heart that she wanted the fullness of life 
that commitment in their case, a commitment to marriage alone, could provide. If he could not step up to that choice, then for all the pain it would lastingly involve, she would have to move on. And she could directly say this was as much for his sake as it was for hers. It would not do him any good, she said, to leave him listlessly in the doldrums of an endless adolescence. For his own sake, he needed to decide how he was going to live. She made, and need have made, no apology for this. Life is short. Season leads to season. There comes a time to choose. I need you to make a decision to choose. That is what she said. And they parted. And she departed. And this caused her immeasurable pain. And she spent four long, lonely years before finally finding and being found by a lasting love which could be adorned by a commitment. Please do not hear this as one-size-fits-all counsel. It is not. It is intended to convey a much bigger reality. It may be that some part of your life has yet to open up because you have avoided a choice. You have good reasons to stall, for there is pain in choice, and no one likes pain. And sometimes the faithful choice is not to choose at all for a time, but recognize that for what it is, a choice still, a choice still. When Jesus guides us through the wilderness, he announces, among other things, a time to choose. You have one life to live. Your life will be fashioned to great measure, Sunday by Sunday, in the decisions you make. You need to make some decisions, come Sunday, come Lent. I do not say so to bring pain, though pain there is in any choice. I say it for yourself, your soul, your well-being, for your health. Will you make some bad decisions? Uh, probably. But when the time is right and the season is right, you need to make a choice. Plan for the worst, hope for the best, then do your most and leave all the rest. And to do so, you will have to have a little faith. Faith isn't faith, finally, until it's all you have left to go on. That's why we call it faith. Which is the bitter truth when it comes to choices? You will have to have a little faith. Real decisions are real hard. They are hard enough without a lot of bad religion mixed in. This is the second warning about falsehood. Last spring, as sometimes I do, I went late to Fenway buying a reduced price ticket for the game from the second inning on. I sat with a young family with two young children. They, the kids, transported me back to a gone epoch of our own children, wild with life, full of joy, for whom hot dogs, the crack of the bat, and the roar of the crowd bring sheer ecstasy. In the fourth inning, my phone rang, and it was a dear young friend. I found a des deserted stairwell where I could barely hear her. With the undulation of fan adulation roaring and pounding above, she asked what I thought. They had struggled, she and her husband, for two months to decide. Should they stay in the Midwest? Should they move to the East? Stay? Go? East? Midwest? They had one more day to choose. I could only barely hear in the stairwell. Red Sox Nation was part of that muffled reception, but more of it was that no one really knows what you're going through when you decide. Even those who know you best and love you most, we have this 
idiomatic saying in English. Maybe you remember it. It's up to you. Which? Comfort or adventure? Security or novelty? The new or the tried and true? Which? They had already used up the six-point advice list proffered earlier in the sermon. In tears she asked, which is the will of God? I tune in when religion rears its head. Huddled in the stairwell of New England's religious capital, Fenway Park, I tune my ears to hear, how do we know which is the will of God? You mean what is right? What is good, true, and right? Yes, ah. And then I said this, you know, while this might not always be the case, in this and in many, in most cases, my friend, you are free. You are truly free. What you choose, east or west, whichever you choose, that will be, will become the will of God, that is, the right, the true, and the good in part because you will work to make it so. What you choose is what becomes the right, the true, and the good. So choose, jump, like Redford and Newman in that iconic moment for one generation listening, with some humor and some daring, jump, choose. In your choice, the future opens. Real decisions are real hard. They are hard enough without a covering of pride mixed in. Pride is our third warning. Our neighbor New Hampshire senator has caught my eye this winter. He accepted and then rejected a cabinet position. There are other reasons to admire Judge Gregg. His openness for one, his frugality for another, his industry for a third. I don't know him from Adam's house cat. I never met the gentleman. But it takes a kind of courage to redecide to think twice, and second thoughts are important, especially when you realize in hindsight that they should have been first thoughts. In the wedding business, we call this the flowers are already bought syndrome. I have a feeling this is not right, come to think of it, but I already have my dress and the flowers are already bought and the invitations went out last month. Once you are convinced of the primacy of the second thought, you have to face your pride. You have to face the difficulty of admitting you were wrong, as in, I was, I was, I was. It's hard to say the word, but the judgment and insight of the primary second thought is worthless without the courage to banish pride and change course. And Judd Gregg had that courage and faced down that pride on a big screen, on a high wire, the world watching, which makes it all the harder. Just didn't feel right. It just isn't who I am, he said. He made a decision about what was his almost self, the cabinet, and what was his own most self, the Senate. Life will give you ample practice in choosing between your almost self and your own most self, and you will not always get it right, Sometimes you will need to think twice, to find the courage to face down pride, to pay the florist and to donate the flowers to the nursing home. It is never too late to change your mind. It may be very, very costly, but your mind is your mind and you can change it. What? You don't want to change your mind because you might offend someone? You don't want to change your mind because you might have to make a hard phone call? 
Really? I remember a friend telling me that at age 20 he had driven from northern New York State down into Canada to retrieve an engagement ring he had given a young woman six months before. He said, it just wasn't right. How was it, I asked him. Not pleasant, he replied. But the rest of my life was on the line. Now, you don't want to remake every decision midstream. Some apprehension and uncertainty go with every choice. That is what faith is fully all about. If you were certain, you would not need confidence. But you are not certain, so you need a little faith. You see, real decisions are real hard. Be sober. Be watchful. Avoid pride, sloth, and falsehood. You might want to remember the greatest blunder of our nation in this yet young century as a warning and take heed. Our decision to go to war in 2003 epitomizes pride, sloth, and falsehood. It was fed by the falsehood of an arrogant nationalism, sold on the basis of sloth, unfinished work, and faulty information, and carried forward on the strength of an overweening pride that dared not, dared not, dared not think twice, take a second look. Such a cultural cloud makes all lesser personal decisions in our epoch all the harder, unless collectively we may learn, express contrition, grow up, and move on. The scriptures are written as the good news itself is preached from faith to faith. In the teeth of their detailed intricacies, it is possible to forget or mistake the conversion offered every week by our lessons. My friend, where are you headed? You are asked today to deal with decision. Alfred North Whitehead, of all people, at Harvard, of all places, wrote, the essence of Christianity is the, the appeal to the life of Christ as a revelation of the nature of God and of his agency in the world. There can be no doubt as to, the elements in the, as to what elements in the record have evoked a response from all that is best in human nature. The mother, the child, the bare manger, the lowly man, homeless and self-forgetful, with his message of peace, love, and sympathy, the suffering, the agony, the tender words as life ebbed, the final despair, and the whole with the authority of supreme victory. To this manger, I invite you. To this man and his friendship, I invite you. To this message and its persuasive power, I invite you. To this long suffering and its redemptive healing, I invite you. To these tender words and their encouragement, I invite you. To the authority of this victory, I invite you. One opens such an invitation by dealing with decision.
As we are called to prayer through the singing of Lead Me, Lord, I would invite you to pray as you are so moved to best support the prayers of this community. Come to the altar rail, stand in your place, raise your hands, respond in your first language, however you feel the spirit in your heart and mind and soul. I will set the intention and then we'll say, God, in your mercy, if you would please, please respond, hear our prayer. You who give us every good and perfect thing, we give you thanks for this time together with you and with one another. To worship, to consider the source of our lives and the course of our lives to think of the choices and to rest in your love as we make them. And so we pray for all who confess your name, for our unity in your truth, for our life together in your love, and for our revelation of your glory in the world. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for the people of this land and for all the nations, for the ways of justice and peace amongst us, for our honoring of one another, and for our service to our common wealth and common good. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for the earth as your own creation, for our reverence for its diversity and beauty, for our right use of its resources in service to others and to your honor and glory. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for all whose lives are closely linked with ours, for our service to Christ in them, and for our love for one another as Christ loves us. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for all who face particular challenges of body, mind, spirit, for their comfort, healing, courage, and hope 
for our standing with them in the common and extraordinary challenges of life, and for the joy of your salvation for us all. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for those who have died, with thanksgiving for their life and work amongst us, for their family and friends, for your will fulfilled in them, and for our sharing with all your saints in the life to come. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for the joys and celebrations of our human life, for our power and agency, for our freedom to choose, for the love of our family and friends, for the satisfaction of our work, for the milestones that mark our journey. In this Lenten season of awareness and practice, we pray for our courage and peace in the love and power of your incarnation, your example, and your life with us. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray in all these things that your will is done in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us when we pray to be bold and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Beloved, we are extending now our hospitality to you to particularize and concretize your reception of invitations. We invite you to use the uh, rituals of friendship, the red books that are found on the side aisle, that we may come to know one another and that the chapel ministry may be in touch with you personally, even as we're preparing for the offering. We invite you to be in worship in the next several Sundays as we come toward Holy Week 
particularly next Sunday when our friend and colleague and predecessor, the Reverend Dr. Dean Robert Cummings Neville, will be bringing the sermon, and the following Sunday in which Dean Ken Elmore will be a part of the liturgy. You might want to pause and look at the website for the chapel regarding the many activities of Holy Week just around the corner. We invite those who are listening to come and join us. The university will begin again tomorrow and our students will be returning. I covet, for those who are listening, the chance you have to come to know the people in the pews at Marsh Chapel, their hearts, their minds, their loving kindness. A great treat awaits you. We invite your attendance. For those present, sometime in the year, we invite you to come to know one of our choristers, our choir. As they were singing earlier, I thought, as beautiful as is their music, if you could get to know them one by one, you would be fed, nourished, and thrilled. They are wonderful people. Of course, I have a, a favorite in the alto section, but <laughs> take that as an invitation. We also invite you to come and participate the next three Tuesday evenings at 6 p.m. in lectures by our friend Kathy Dar on violence in the Hebrew scripture and the discussions that follow. With these thoughts and concerns for us, let us continue to worship by presenting our tithes and offerings.
before us, the life within us, the fellowship among us, thy love that surrounds us, we offer our thanks. Bless these gifts and the givers, we pray. Amen. Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit be and abide with each one of us now and forever. Amen. <laughs>